Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Good morning, Yuma. Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law. This is Sean Garner, and I'm an attorney with Deason, Garner, and Hanson, in studio here with my partner, Adam Hanson, and we have a special guest with us today, Judge John Nelson. Welcome, gentlemen. Morning. Good morning. So, John, let's go ahead and start with the introduction. Uh, you started and served on the bench for Yuma Superior Court, Yuma County Superior Court, um, about 20 years ago. Yes, that's about right. I retired in 2016. Um, you practiced law for 40 years altogether. You practiced law for 22 years before um, serving on the Superior Court bench. A lot of people don't understand how significant it is and, and, and the extent of the role that judges have on the Superior Court, but they hear cases anything from uh, a landlord-tenant dispute to a, a death penalty issue on a murder case. Yes, it's a wide range of, of areas that we cover. The media covers a lot of issues about what's going on in federal law with the appellate courts, particularly the Supreme Court, and that does affect us overall. But as a community, we seem to overlook what's going on right here and the people that are making this community function, particularly the mayor, the city council, and the judges that keep the law in order and enforce and interpret and pass down um, sentences for individuals. And so it's, it's a very critical role. When you uh, served on the bench initially, how many Superior Court judges were in the court? Uh, there were five. Five individuals determining hearing all of the legal issues uh, for any dispute above $10,000 all the way up to a potential death sentence for a criminal act. And, and that's quite a burden that, that you had to carry. How was it? How, how, when you look back in, in your service on the court, do you look back at that time fondly or was it strenuous? Well, it was strenuous, and uh, but you got to be on your toes, certainly, because every day of the week you're handling different kinds of matters, and uh, uh, but you prepare for those. You're on the bench uh, a good share of that time, uh, not full-time, otherwise you couldn't get anything done otherwise in cases that need decisions uh, made on. But uh, the, Of course, the cases that we handled also included juvenile court matters. We had a presiding juvenile court judge, which I was for a while. Uh, so it does range from dealing with children all the way up to adults. And and I'm glad that you brought that up because you and I have a special tie. Not only have our families known each other for some time, but in 2011, I already had three children. But the stars aligned, and we had the opportunity to adopt. And it was significant. This is not something that I had ever anticipated growing up. And when the opportunity came to us, it felt so right that um, there was no denying that it was the right thing to do. And so when we had this, we were foster parents. We had to go through training as foster parents in order to even get the opportunity to have this child in our home. And the whole time when they're training you as a foster parent or giving you um, the yeah education that you need to have to understand how to protect these kids and the mentality and the goal of the state it is that the goal is to reunite the child with their family you're there to provide the support the love the roof over their head the food 
that they need until they can be reunited with their family, if at all possible. And uh, the standard for determining whether or not they're going to be reunited with their parent or potentially be adopted out isn't whether or not the potential adoptive parents are better parents than their biological parents. It's only if their biological parents cannot meet their um, basic needs of food and education and nourishment. And um, you could probably put that more concisely. What is the specific standard? Well, in the juvenile court, these children have been removed from some uh, home environment. Oftentimes, it's not much of a home, but uh, you've stated the criteria uh, accurately. Uh, These uh, children are, uh, when the decision is made to remove these children from a home, there are statutory standards that have to be met, and generally they're, they're not being taken care of in general uh, parlance. Uh, and then when the decision has to be made whether or not they should be returned or not, then it depends on the status and the ability of the uh, uh, biological parents as to whether or not they can care for these children. Uh, and of course, in many circumstances, these children are placed in foster care, which is what, uh, uh, how you uh, got your son. And uh, when the time comes to make that decision, should the child be returned, it's based upon the ability of the biological parents to care for that child. And if not, then uh, the child is, is uh, rights are severed, uh, parental rights are severed with the biological parents, and the child either remains in that foster home, which is oftentimes the case, or is moved on to a, a different location. But uh, we're always, we're always, as judges, we're always faced with the, with the situation where the child in foster care is generally in a better circumstance uh, to care for the child than the biological parent is because these biological parents have to go through retraining, basically. Oftentimes it's drug issues and uh, and that sort of thing. And you've got to rehabilitate them to get them to the point where they can take the child back. So You know from experience that the rehabilitation is, is a tough uphill battle and potentially one that they will fall back into the old habits again. Yes. It's not often that a parent can rehabilitate themselves if they have uh, uh, drug issues, uh, addictions that have to be addressed. It's not often they can get themselves in a position to get those children back because the law limits the amount of time they're given. They're not given uh, three or four years to do it. They're generally given less than a year to accomplish that rehabilitation. Which... We'll, we'll dip into that for a little bit, but um, just going back to the decision as a judge to move these children, first of all, out of the biological parents' homes into foster care, and then potentially back out of foster care, which I'm sure you did dozens of times, and you saw these foster parents who were going out of their way and doing the best they could and providing very good home situations for these children, yet their biological parents were meeting a minimal state standard to retain um, their parental rights. And so your, your job was not to determine who was the better parent. Your job was to make sure that if they met the minimal sta- uh, state rights or statutory standards, then they go back home, which oftentimes means in a worse situation. Well, yes, uh, that's you're correct. And that's heartrending. Yes, it is. Not only for uh, for the uh, judge, but more particularly for the foster parents. Oftentimes, foster parents go into uh, the process to to foster children, 
hoping that the child might be available for adoption, and that's an okay uh, motive to do that. But it's a heartbreaker to send that child back to a family that has minimally met the, the uh, criteria f- for the child to be back in their home, knowing full well that the child is stable and is in a loving home with a foster family. Well, we went through that process, and we did have to have a trial and have a determination whether or not that, those minimum requirements were met. You presided over that case, and uh, fortunately, the facts and the evidence were in our favor, and we were able to adopt our child, and uh, what a blessing he's been in our family. That was 12 years ago, and it's it's amazing, but that's the type of role these judges play. It, it's, it's a very... Um, foundational role in our community from kids and where they're placed in families to who wins lawsuits over a contract issue and uh who goes to jail for life well you have to follow the law absolutely i mean you we're we take an oath to uh, apply the law as fairly and equitably as you can Uh, sometimes the result isn't the most compassionate result that you seek uh but you you have to follow the law and uh, and I'm glad it worked out for your family. I can't believe it's been that long since uh, we've been through that process. I guess we can talk about it because it's so long ago. And you're right. It's <laughs> it's 12 years and uh, yeah. and uh, it, it's been a great experience. So anyway, I wanted to publicly uh, thank you for your role in participating in that because I know that in private practice, you can potentially earn more money and work less hours. But as a judge, you're really a servant of the community. To be sure, uh, you can generally uh, make a better living uh, from a pay standpoint uh, in private practice. Uh, and the bench needs lawyers from the private practice. It's not, uh, bench isn't uh, drawing enough people with civil experience at the present time. Uh, but it's it's been a good experience for me. So, and I did a lot of adoption work as a private attorney. I placed a lot of children and did that. And then the nice part about it, going on the bench was I uh, had a chance of uh, creating new families where it was appropriate, like in yours, and uh, finalizing, I guess, is the best way, finalizing that uh, creation of a new family. Yeah. Well, thank you. We have to take a break. This is 560 AM, KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back, Yuma. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. Sean Garner here with Deason, Garner, and Hanson. I'm an attorney, and we do estate planning. And so we need to talk a little bit about uh, some seminars that we have coming up that will allow the public to come and learn about how they can get their affairs in order. We have two seminars. One is Thursday, the 2nd of March, and that is at 10.30 a.m. at the Yuma Main Library. And the other one is Friday, at 2.30 p.m. at the Foothills Library. If you'd like to attend either one of those, it's going to be open to the public, but you do need to RSVP because we run out of seats. We have run out of seats in the last four that we have given. So please call our office and reserve your seat or 
go online to yuma.law and click on the link to uh, reserve your seats to participate in that. And one of the best parts about those open forum discussions is that typically we have a skeptic in the crowd. And I, I really enjoy when the skeptic bring up scenarios that they've gone through that had made their life difficult or, or easy with or without a trust. And so we can dive down into the details as to what really happens when people run into issues of disability and death and how it works. And so um, the skeptics bring out the reality of what really works and the validity of what we're saying, whether you know, we're just blowing smoke or actually know what we're talking about here. Adam, how do you feel about those, those open forum? Do you think there's any better way to do it? We've got online seminars as well for those that can't attend in live or in person. Because of the COVID uh, issues that we ran into in 2020, we had to do that because the, the libraries were closed. So we couldn't uh, go to the libraries to do these seminars that, like we've been doing in the past. And we had to think on our feet real fast. And the thing that we came up with was, well, let's put it online. So we quickly threw something up so people could watch that online on their, at the home while they're quarantined and still get the information that they needed. And uh, now that we've kind of come out of that and the libraries have opened up, We've come back to the library, and we've really seen a huge response. Last time that we did this a few weeks ago, I mean, we had the the room was packed. We couldn't admit anybody else because we were above the fire code standard. And so people have really been coming out and, and supporting this type of uh, forum, and we, we, we welcome it. So if you have time, coming Thursday, uh, this, this coming Thursday at 1030 down at the main library, we're going to have... Um, one of these seminars, and then we'll do another one on Friday at 2.30 in the afternoon. That's uh, Friday, March 3rd. I want to go back to last week and talk a little bit about a fantastic opportunity that we had where 12 members of Congress came into Yuma and paid special attention to our community, which is a great honor. And for all of those that live here, you know that there's some other parts of the state that look down their nose at Yuma a bit. They kind of look at Yuma as a redheaded stepchild. I know when I go up to Phoenix and participate in some of the boards, or I, I um, I'm either participating in continuing education up there, and I and I tell people, oh yeah, I'm from Yuma, Arizona. I get <laughs> I get a sideways look, and they say, really, Yuma? And uh, yeah, I say, yeah, there is civilized uh, um, life down there in Yuma, Arizona. But uh, I, I take it as a badge of honor. I said, yeah, Yuma, you don't want to go down there. I'll, I'll, I'll hold the fort down in Yuma because I really like our small community. It's getting bigger, but it's still a tight-knit community. And uh, you can't afford to burn a bridge because you're going to come across that person again and again. And so the civility here in our little community, I think, ha- has a high standard. Anyway, um, these 12 members of Congress came down to our community because we're a border town, and they wanted to address this issue of the crisis on the border. And so um, Adam and I, we had the opportunity to act as chauffeurs and drive them around. We went to the Yuma Regional Medical Center and saw the emergency room. We saw the uh, maternity ward. We saw, um, I think it was the administrative offices. And then we went over to the food bank and toured that a little bit and then went down to City Hall and were able to sit in the crowd for a congressional hearing on what is going on with the border and how the current administration is handling these issues that we're facing with the border. 
And I, I ran into Judge Nelson there. He was in the crowd with us and watching that congressional hearing. If you want to YouTube it, just YouTube uh, congressional hearing. It was a judicial hearing uh, in Yuma, Arizona, and they've got that full hearing on YouTube. But it was a great experience. Adam, what stood out to you? What, what was really the most rewarding part of that experience for you? Like you mentioned before, we had the opportunity to drive the committee members all around Yuma to these different locations. And so, and the reason why it's not because we're special or anything like that, it's just because we, we knew the individual, Jonathan Lyons, who put this all together, who really kind of acted as the host to this judiciary committee. And uh, so he contacted us about a week before the event and he said, hey, I know you have a big van because you have big families. Can we borrow that to drive these guys around? And we said, yeah, sure, that'd be a great experience. You know, we want to be kind of rubbing shoulders with these individuals. And, and so that's what we did. And we showed up with our vans and, and um, they loaded them up. And so we had the opportunity to drive around with like Jim Jordan and we had uh, Matt Gates. We had a lot of these heavy hitters in the House of Representatives, but particularly on this committee. And if you're not familiar with this, so my kids kept asking me, like, what is the point of all this? What's going on? We watched it together on the, on this YouTube link, you know, that Sean mentioned. And uh, they kept asking me, what's the point? And I said, well, it's hard to dumb it down, uh, sort of, for a, a kid to understand. But I, I basically just said, you know, they're trying to find evidence of are the people at the top doing what they're supposed to be doing? Or if they're not, then they're going to take some sort of action. Are they going to remove individuals using the impeachment power that they have? Or are they going to um, pull the purse strings out from under the the programs that are already implemented through these agencies? So I said, that's what they're trying to f- get to the bottom of. Are, are, are there laws that are not being upheld by the current administration such that they need to remove somebody or change change the guard? And the kids are like, huh? You know, they still are like, I don't understand. It doesn't matter. You don't have to understand. Okay, that's what's happening. And uh, yeah, so like you said, Sean, we ran into Judge Nelson, and and uh, he's a good friend of ours, and, and we we admire him, we love him. And uh, this came up. Why don't you come and, and sit down with us? And I I didn't have an opportunity to talk to you, Judge Nelson, after this whole panel spoke, but Sean did. But I I am curious about what was your take on it. Here you have these House of Representatives that we see all the time on Fox News, on CNN. You see them. They're, they're kind of like celebrities, if you will. And now they're here in Yuma, and they're giving us credit for what we're doing and the hard work we're doing here. What was your take on the whole thing? Well, I, it's, uh, it was obvious to me that they're not ignorant of what's going on. They're, I mean, they're very articulate, and uh, they're here to, they were here, obviously, to uh, get some uh, personal insight into what's really going on uh, at the border. The one thing I came away with, if I could share with you, is that is this. Even if you uh, don't count, or you, you discount, basically, the number of people coming across and the difficulty in caring for them, even if you dif- discount the issue concerning the medical care that we're having to take care of, the one thing that is there that's pervasive throughout the border crisis is this. Fentanyl is streaming across the border, and because of all these people coming across, the cartels are just, uh, they're exploiting it uh, beyond what you could conceive of. And if I could share a personal experience with you about that, as a, uh, a pro tem judge at the moment, just doing some part-time work, I've been asked to handle uh, settlement conferences in criminal cases. 
Now, they have stacked up over the last couple of years because of the COVID issues, and there's a lot of cases that uh, have been delayed. And I've been asked to come back and try and get those matters resolved. And I would tell you, in almost every single drug case that I've been uh, handling and trying to resolve with the prosecutor, the defense attorney, and the defendant, it involves fentanyl. And when I retired, it wasn't, fentanyl was just beginning to surface. Uh, it was mainly methamphetamine. Now, almost 100% of the drug matters that I'm hearing informally to try and get these matters resolved, it's all fentanyl. And it does involve deaths that have occurred. Uh, so personal experience, I, that's, that's exactly what's going on. So discounting everything else, every other issue other than fentanyl, uh, there needs to be something done to stop the flow. Do you think? Do you think there was a purpose to this this uh, committee meeting here in Yuma? In the sense that is anything going to happen? I mean, because Sean and I were talking about this as as neat as it was to have these individuals come and to see them and interact with them to hear what they had to say. They are politicians, and and that was one of the things that I took away. They were in they were in my vehicle while I was toting them around, and they were really surprised at how awesome Yuma is in the sense of agriculture, what we provide to the world, really, and how we um, take care of our own here and our patriotism here and, and the, the bases that we have and, and the military support that we have. They were just blown away. And most people are when they experience Yuma. It, it is unique in that sense. And having said all that, they were kind enough to listen. They, you know, but I, I got the sense that what... Now what? You know, what are you going to do about it? Is there anything that you can do? And that's really the frustrating thing. Okay, so you've heard what's actually happening here at the border. What are you going to do about it, if anything? And what can actually, what can they do? What power do they have? What do you think? Well, the House of Representatives, of course, is only one-third of, of our government. And uh, uh, these uh, congressmen that were here, I mean, I, I, I think they were authentic in their desire to make some changes. And the one comment that uh, I firmly believe that came out of the uh, uh, session yes, uh, last week was that uh, they have the purse strings, and they can affect what goes on. Now, it, what the Senate does when, when they get a, a piece of legislation is, uh, is up to them. And then, of course, uh, the, the, uh, President Biden makes a call on whether or not he wants to uh, go along with what's been produced by both the houses. But uh, it's it's a difficult situation. But the purse strings, uh, string purse strings have uh, really are the way that I think they're going to have to uh, set some standards here and get some changes made. Uh, that was my take on it. I mean, they are politicians and they they're very articulate about what they want to do. But it, this this wasn't a pony show, in my opinion, at all. It was. Uh, uh, very well put together, and it's documented really that we're at ground zero here in Yuma. You know, I think the introduction to our show, and if for any of those people, any of those that missed it, um, we talked about how a judge's responsibility is to understand the law, hear evidence on both sides of the issue, and then make sure that the law is adhered to, and and pass judgment based on the law, not based on his personal preference or on his feelings or what he thinks is best, but based on the statutes that have been passed by our legislatures, and what we've seen here recently is that uh, our president doesn't take that obligation to heart. He does what he thinks is right 
or what he thinks will be more politically advantageous to him. And it's irregardless of the law. For example, um, we have a law about whether or not people can come across our borders and, and in what manner they can come across our borders. And there are processes in which they can come across our borders. Now, many disagree, including myself, that the process is too long and too strung out and complicated to legally come across the border and participate productively as part of our great American culture. But until that gets fixed, we need to adhere to the laws. You can't just push the laws to the side and allow this wave of human trafficking to come across the border. And that's exactly what has occurred. And I think that's what the um, this Judiciary Committee wanted to point out, that the president is not adhering to the law. The Secretary of State is not adhering to the law. And uh, that is what we want to get testimony on. He called Jonathan Lyons, who's a supervisor here in Yuma County, to ask what his personal experience is on the ground. And he says, yes, I, I witnessed these people coming over. There's a lot of human trafficking. And um, other than the 4 million people that have registered through the Border Patrol that have come over in the past two years, there's a million that have not. And they call them either the gotaways or they resist the process of going through, even if they're walking through the border illegally, they can still get processed, but they don't want to be because potentially they're bad actors participating in these uh, nefarious schemes of having human trafficking for sex or for labor or for whatever issue that they want to do to create their business. And this is a multi-billion dollar business that they're running. I went down to the border about a year ago. It was 11.30, 12 o'clock at night. I went down there for a half an hour to 45 minutes, and I witnessed multiple families crossing the border. They were ditching all of their backpacks and everything that uh, they used during the travel on the south side of the wall, on the Mexican side of the wall, and uh, including their IDs. And then they would come over, and the majority of them were turning themselves in to the border patrol and getting on the bus and being taken to um, a temporary tent residence that they have to be processed. But there were some that were kind of lost. They were looking around, and we would drive up and down the the road along the wall, and we'd see these vans. Um, they were parked there, and some of the vans would look like the vans that uh, field workers drive, and uh, so they were disguising themselves as, as legitimate business vans, but they were human traffickers. And we would drive up to these vans to see what they were doing, and they would take off and hightail it out of there. They were waiting for these individuals, and we stopped several families from being encountered by these vans and redirected them to the Border Patrol. And they had no idea what was going on, but most of them were young families, including a lot of women and children, that were very vulnerable to take be, being taken advantage of. And we were there particularly because it was cold. It was very cold that day, and we had um, a trailer full of blankets. And, and Judge, I know you participated in donating and, and, and gathering some of those blankets, so we went down there to provide those blankets to those individuals. And that's what um, Supervisor Lyons testified to, that what's going on here isn't just an opportunity for people that are seeking a better life to come over to the United States and, and be productive citizens here in our, in our great country. It's, it's this 
underground criminal activity that is taking advantage of the most vulnerable people out there. Well, I, there's no question that the cartels are exploiting the uh, open border situation. And I, you are right. I have been down there, and I've seen it going on myself. Uh, the cartels, they don't, you know, they run drugs uh, along the entire Arizona border. And I'm not talking just about other states. I'm just talking about Arizona. Uh, they, they run drugs uh, out in the middle of the desert, out in the Barry Goldwater Range. They're uh, anywhere there's not a fence. And so they're using that. They are actually, they're exploiting the number of people who are flowing, trying to get into this country and disguising uh, their, their transportation of uh, illicit drugs. So, and, and if anybody doesn't think that cartels aren't working in Yuma, that's, uh, they need to do a little more research because they're cl- they clearly are. And they're, I mean, it, it's a turf uh, warfare situation situation here in Yuma with uh, with a couple of cartels are are always trying to stake out their claim and I've seen that of course in in my lifetime and working uh, on the bench and and uh, now back again on on a part time basis it's it's uh, it's an awful situation and, and they'll and continue to do it too as long as it's like it's like that the numbers are staggering every day of, of approximately twenty five Hundred people cross the border here in the Yuma sector. Twenty-five hundred people. That's just staggering. And uh, to think about the productivity that we could have if we allowed a streamlined version of immigration into our country for people that want to participate in this American dream, I, I feel that that is a great opportunity for us to open up that process and and modify those laws to allow that to happen. And in doing so, lock the border down for the rest. I was talking to um, one of the staffers that I had the opportunity to drive around yesterday. And um, the staffers, for all of those of you listening, they're doing a lot of the writing of the laws. The congressmen, they, they understand what's going on in the issues, but they have their plate full of traveling and, and, and doing these um, press appearances. The staffers are doing a lot of the research and they're putting together the statutes and they're they're helping the congressmen actually do the actual groundwork that, that ends up in the legislation. And he was telling me about some legislation that he wrote. And um, what he was saying is that th- what needs to happen is this open, transparent, um, process for immigrants to come and participate and be and have a clear route to citizenship here in the United States. That's really what we're looking to achieve. And in order to do that, we can close down, we have to close down um, all of the other ways to get into the country. That, and so all of these gaps in the wall that currently exist. And, and so there's this easy line and flow into the country. And when we made an analogy of an airport, Airports are extremely safe places to be. You go through an airport and they move millions and millions of people every day. But uh, they also screen those individuals and they've got a list of um, protected or potentially um, dangerous individuals. And if they encounter those individuals, and they're going to be pulled off to the side. And we haven't seen an act of terrorism in the airlines for many years. 
I don't think it would be that big of a stretch to implement something like that on our borders where we have people that they just want to carry on their business. They want to come across and participate in our community or in our country. And uh, let's let all those law-abiding citizens come across and filter out all those who are not, who are going to be bad actors. We've got to take a break. This is 560 AM, KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back, Yuma. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM, KBLU. We are talking about the Judiciary Committee that came down and visited Yuma last week. They were here on Thursday, and they visited parts of the community, and then they ended with a a Judiciary Committee meeting hearings at uh, City Hall. We were able to chauffeur them around, Adam and I, and uh, Judge Nelson was there in the crowd listening at that uh, committee hearing. And we talked about um, a lot of the border issues. Now, my opinion on the border is that anybody that wants to legitimately participate in this American dream ought to be given a very clear route to come into our country. And I don't know what your opinion on that is. Mike Pompeo had an interview with John Stossel the other day, and he's likely going to throw his hat in as a presidential candidate here pretty soon. Uh, We know that he was on the Trump administration, and he was asked whether or not uh, he felt that there should be a continuation of immigration in the United States. And his uh, comment was, right now I think we need to lock it down to everybody until we get get some control on the issue. And I disagree with that. I think that we need to create a process, a very streamlined legal process, to allow people to flow into our country very in, in large numbers and smoothly and allow those people to participate in this American dream because we're all in this boat together on earth as humans and we all want to strive for a better life. And so I don't want to just to, um, discriminate against anybody else who's want to pursue that life. But uh, that's my opinion on this. You and I have talked about this a lot, Sean, and, and in those conversations, in my mind, it, it's hard. It's hard. You've got this humanitarian element to the whole thing. And that's what I told the people as I was carting them around in the vans. They asked my opinion about the border issues. I said, well, I live out in the desert. I, my my uh, home abuts the Barry Goldwater Range. So at the very beginning of the Biden administration, it was very common for us to see Border Patrol helicopters right in our backyard, literally. And we would see individuals crossing right in our backyard. And that made me fearful as a dad of, of four little girls who often just go out and start playing in the desert, you know? And uh, I, that's the big fear for me, number one, as a, as a dad. But at the same time, you have to be careful dehumanizing people. And just because they, be, they come across our border in a, a way that we don't approve of doesn't mean that they're not human. And I think that's the, that's the challenge that we have to very carefully consider, that they still are human beings. And, Some and, of them might and, be bad. Well, but a lot of them are well-meaning and just seeking out a better life for their their families. And that that's the thing. So I, I try and I, I try and reconcile this in my mind. So I, I am a, a descendant of an individual that came from Italy, my great-great-grandfather who came through Ellis Island many years ago at the end of the 1800s. Uh, he went through Ellis Island, went over to Chicago to his sponsor, and then he 
made his way eventually to Seattle, opened up a restaurant, and there he was a successful businessman in, in Seattle. It, learning English language, it, that's what we want. We want that American dream for everybody. So what's the difference between when my great-great-grandfather came through Ellis Island and what we're doing today, where we allow people to come in and we're not really vetting them? I think that's the problem. I think through the Ellis Island system or the, the old immigration system that we had that allowed the best and sometimes not the best, but whoever wanted to come to America and experience that American dream, they were able to come. There were a few criteria that they had to meet, but it wasn't very onerous like we've, we've experienced in, in past decades, okay? So that's number one. Number two, what has changed since then and now, the, the biggest thing in my mind is since the immigration of the past that, that my great-grandfather experienced and now in between then, we've implemented as a nation on the federal level welfare systems. And so I, I try to reconcile this because this is a line of questioning that I really enjoyed from the representative from Alabama, Barry Moore, uh, when he was talking to Supervisor Lines in, in last week's hearing. He, he brought up the fact that you're telling me that we have individuals coming through the border and the moment they get here, they're asking for their motion to appear. That's what the, they'll, they'll turn themselves in the Border Patrol freely so they can get that motion to appear. What is that, Judge, in, your, in, uh, in layman speak? Well, it's, it's a written notice that here's your next court date. And apparently, uh, according to what we heard last week, uh, they, they get those and they just totally ignore them. I mean, from a court standpoint, from a judiciary standpoint, uh, if you tell an individual who is supposed to appear in court uh, and give them a date, and you fully expect them not to show up, then you're not only wasting your time, but that's the wrong process. Uh, I mean, the court system couldn't function if you knew that most of your uh, individuals who were required to appear, whether it's something good or something bad, <clears throat> that they, you knew they weren't going to show up. And what's the point of going through all that? What's your understanding from the line of questioning that, that you heard last week? Uh, when, why are they turning themselves in to get this motion to appear if they're not going to show up? Well, my understanding is that uh, they they know that they won't have to show up. It's as there simple public, as that. Are there any public benefits that come with that now that you have a motion to appear? Uh, you know, I, I'm not uh, well-versed in at, as to what actually individuals are entitled to, but uh, they're usually headed off uh, to other family members or somebody that uh, they know or uh, they've got an address for, and... Uh, I mean, I, I suppose there's a prospect that they receive some uh, welfare benefits. I'm not sure exactly what they are. And uh, So it was my understanding, and this was what was highlighted, was they want that motion to appear because once you have that, it's like your golden ticket. Now I can apply for access benefits here in Arizona. I can get uh, food stamps. And so to the tune of about $800 a month, that's why they want that motion to appear. Are they going to appear? No, they're not going to. But they have a legal document that allows them to now apply through our welfare systems. And that was, that's going back to what I mentioned before. In my opinion, I, I think the difference between what we used to have when my great-great-grandfather came through Ellis Island and what we have now is we have this combination of we as taxpayers, I, I don't get to say, hey, IRS, this year I'm just going gonna, gonna to take a mulligan. I'm not going to do my taxes this year. I just don't fill up to it. Um, I can't do that with the IRS or else I get put in prison. So I have to pay my taxes, 
but I don't get to direct where my taxes go, even if it goes to eight hundred to the tune of eight hundred dollars a month to an individual that crosses illegally, and I don't know who that person is. They haven't been vetted, and now they're into our community. I don't get to control that. All I know is that I have to pay my money to the IRS or else I go to prison. And so I don't think you can have an open border system like we have. And this is just my opinion. I don't think we can have this, what we're doing today and the public benefits that come along with it. I think something's going to break eventually. I think you can have one or the other, but you can't have both. And, and we're, we're running into that. And in this line of questioning that we heard from Representative Moore from Alabama, he brought up that, that fact Judge, you have four children. Were they all born here in Yuma? Yes. Yeah. So you went to the hospital here. It was the only place to go to have the babies, yes. right? Did you pay for that, or who paid for that? Well, of course, uh, uh, my wife and I took care of that. So. Yeah. You had to, right? You couldn't just say, hey, YRMC, I'm not feeling up to this. You know, I'm not a, I'm, I don't like the bill. I'm just not going to pay it. Or they're going to send you to collections. What was really interesting was Dr. Trenchell was there from, he's the CEO of YRMC, right, at the hearing. And uh, so it was very interesting to hear his, his take on what's actually happening at YRMC. We often complain, and I'm going to put this out there publicly, we often complain about the care that we get at YRMC. It's our only hospital, right? Some people have good experiences. Some people have bad experiences. Um, we often hear about bad experiences because those are the ones that stick out to us. And what we learned, I would say, what, three weeks ago, Sean, when we, we interviewed um, Dr. Uh, Rubish, who's a dentist here in town, and he talked about his personal experience with COVID and being admitted to YRMC. And what we came away with was the conclusion that his care at YRMC was good to the level that it could have been, but the problem was that it was so understaffed that he didn't have constant care. And because he didn't have constant care from the nurses, it's not because YRMC wasn't trying to do their job, it's just because they're understaffed, because of the overwhelmment of individuals in the ER, in the ER and in and YRMC itself was pulling away nursing uh, workforce from the care that Dr. Rubish could get. And as a consequence, he, he was on the brink of death. In fact, a lot of his friends thought he was, he was a goner. And by God's miracle, he came out of that because he was able to get out of YMC, go to another hospital that was able to give him some direct care constantly. Is that a failure by YMC? What I heard last week in that hearing from Dr. Trenchell was they're trying their best, but they could, they ha they're tied by the federal government's mandates of what they have to do. They have to give care to anybody that comes into their hospital. And as a consequence of all the, the migrants coming in, they can't give care to everybody in the in the capacity that they would love to do that because everybody's pulled too, too far. And what happens is, for example, and you went to the maternity ward at least four times uh, during your lifetime with your wife when your, your babies were born. Um, what we're experiencing now is that you might not have that opportunity because there's migrants in there filling up the maternity ward. You might just have to wait or if your wife's having a baby, she might have to go to Phoenix or she might have to go to San Diego because the beds might be full in our maternity uh, ward. Did you, did you hear that line of questioning? Well, Dr. Trenchell made it clear that their first priority is taking care of the community. And they've had a difficult time doing that with the number of people that are requiring medical care uh, here in Yuma. And I, it, it's with the only facility here with uh, uh, San Diego and Phoenix the closest, it's difficult to do that. And we have, of course, have our winter visitors. We have an influx in our winter months. And uh, I can't imagine anyone disagreeing with placing the community 
as a priority, uh, and then taking care of uh, everyone else who uh, uh, needs needs some help. And it, it's really flipped at this point, which is really unfortunate and sad. Uh, One of the things that stood out to me was the ending remarks, the conclusion that uh, Representative Jim Jordan from Ohio gave. And he's been one of those that I, I've followed along when I watch news. And yes, I am one of those that watches a little bit of C-SPAN and, and some of the committee hearings um, online. And he really holds the people's feet to the fire that are supposed to be upholding our laws and, and, and making sure that we are a, law, a country of laws. And what he ended with was not how bad of a situation we're in as a country, but very, on a very positive note. He said that uh, he had an opportunity to go back to Dayton, Ohio, and walk through the home of the Wright brothers, you know, the first in flight. And he walked through their home, and, and they flew the first flight in 1903 in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. And that was an amazing feat for man to have flown. And so he walks through the house and he sees the, the, the different bicycle projects that they worked on. And then he sees the, the rudimentary airplanes that they created. And then the actual uh, model of the airplane that they flew in. And it was only a couple hundred feet, maybe 10 or 12 feet off the ground. And he looked at it and thought, wow, that, that's an airplane. I don't know if I'd trust my, my life in that, that contraption there. But it was an amazing feat. It was in 1903. And th but that's not where the tour ended. The tour ended with um, the description of a, a jet that was flown 43 years later, 44 years later, in 1947, that broke the speed of sound. And the point was, in 44 years, we went from getting 10 to 12 feet off the ground for about 100 yards to breaking the sound barrier. And then he took it one step further, and he said 22 years after that, in 1969, we went from barely being able to get a man off the ground to being able to put a man on the moon, and with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And that is an amazing feat. So why is that so unique? And that is it's because it happened in America, not with government subsidies, well, particularly with the first flight, but um, because people were allowed the freedom to innovate. People were allowed to act upon their own genius and own their own ideas. In fact, the, um, a, a big portion, if you read the Wright Brothers story, is about the lawsuits that they had to own the right to their inventions. And that is what a country of laws and a free country does. We need the combination of both. We need to have laws that protect us, that protect our property, that protect our liberty, and we also need the freedom to think and innovate and create. And with the combination of those two, no longer is the sky the limit or the moon, we have endless limits. And uh, I think that's a very positive thing that we need to continue to strive for. That's all the time that we have for today. This is 560 AM, KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Deason, Garner & Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.